Please call the next case. United States versus Anthony Willis. Williams. May it please the court. Good morning. Kayla Williams on behalf of the appellate Anthony Willis. I'll be discussing issues one and two cited in the briefs, the participation of an unbiased juror in deliberations, and the revocation of Mr. Willis's right to self-representation without cause. As to the first issue, juror number three sat through the entire trial. He was an impaneled juror. Right before, immediately before deliberations were to begin, he brought to the court's attention concerns of potential retaliation if a finding of guilt were returned against Mr. Willis. The defense team requested that juror be questioned, requested deliberations be suspended. The court denied those requests to determine whether or not it actually had the authority to do so. That resulted in about an hour of uh, juror number three participating in deliberations. When the questioning actually was allowed to begin, the juror expanded on his concerns, saying specifically on page one. 113, I'm going to try not to be stereotypical, but an allegation of, you know, firearms and offenses in North St. Louis also lead one to believe that there potentially could be, this defendant could be a member of a gang. These questions about the area in which this offense occurred was actually asked by the district court during voir dire, and that's um, in the transcript as well, asking specifically if anyone's familiar with the area. Juror number three did not raise his hand. Three others did. And when the uh, judge expanded to request if there were any issues with those that were familiar with the area in deciding this case, they also raised no hands. Juror number three did not bring those, those issues to the court's attention at that time. So we believe that these statements here go specifically to a bias against Mr. Willis. Well, let, me, let me ask you, I, I, th- I found the key language in there, could be, could be a gang. And I guess my question is, are there gangs in, I mean, I don't know the geography, but are there gangs in North St. Louis that are violent? Uh, there are gangs in St. Louis, not just specifically to North St. Louis. But what I would uh, say to that as a general background, because you mentioned unfamiliarity with St. Louis, North St. Louis uh, has had a long history of dealing with the geographical racial makeup of its area. There's a lot of references to the Del Mar Divide, the North St. Louis, South St. Louis City Divide. And so when uh, juror number three specifically referenced, and for context, North St. Louis, he was referencing, and it was understood, a predominantly black neighborhood in St. Louis. So his line of logic was not necessarily because he's um, a public figure, because he was a local television weatherman. It was because this uh, individual, this case happened in North St. Louis, a predominantly black neighborhood, then there must be gangs. And if there must be gangs, he must belong to one. And because I'm a public figure, I'm more likely There's to There's a lot of logical leaps there. It could be simply 
um, you know, again, it could be simply, I know that there are gangs in North St. Louis. I'm on TV. I'm worried about my safety. I mean, that's another plausible interpretation of everything he said, particularly after the, after the district court questioned him. A fair, a fair assumption that could be, but I would say it's based in negative racial tropes. And that's the problem. And when we have United States v. Young saying, when there's a reasonable possibility of bias, the courts need to take caution in eliminating those bias to ensure a fair trial. And so when we look to not just, I'll, I'll back off from the racial trope and go specifically to Mr. Willis's the bias against him. He made leaps of criminality there that were unfounded, not based in the evidence. And he acknowledges that in the transcript, saying there's nothing in the trial that gave me immediate concern or alarm, exterior factors that may or may not go into our defendant. And so it's the type of assumption that's very similar to Federal Rule of Evidence 404. The prejudicial nature of those assumptions, un unfounded, lead to a pre prejudicial impact to a fair trial for Mr. Willis. But then the district court, I mean, was presented with this evidence. Maybe he... Maybe he delayed a little too long, but then he spent time talking to the to the um, juror about it, and it appears the juror was quite clear. I'm worried about my safety potentially, but but I can be fair and impartial, and sort of explained why he could be fair and impartial. So what what's wrong with that? Either it's rehabilitation, or at least clarifying what the issues were. Certainly, I would say, as Justice O'Connor has said, that a juror's purported. Uh, ability to be impartial is often overstated. And I think his comments are contradictory wait, to that ultimate is, conclusion. This is abuse of discretion review, right? Certainly, yes, Your Honor. And the question is, and then rehabilitation is the word that comes to mind. I'm not even sure. I think clarification might be a better word. But he, the, the district court thoroughly examined juror three, who made all the right answers in terms of a judicially reviewable decision to excuse or not how can we how can we say that the that the answer that when when the juror says everything that's consistent with being a a fair and impartial juror in the midst of deliberation even he even told juror three you know now don't tell anybody we've talked about this how can that be an abuse of discretion? I believe the conclusion that was made based on the statements was the error, Your Honor. And if we look to juror number three's well, questioning, we've we've categorized what can we we've said that abuse of discretion can be A, B, C, or D. It isn't that the conclu wrong conclusion was reached. So which of the A, B, C, D categories for abuse of discretion? Well, my like like, like focusing on bad facts or clearly erroneous facts. What, what, where does this fit? I believe that there are facts that were relied upon that were clearly erroneous in the conclusion to make the fact that the juror could be impartial. I, wait, wait, you've you got to clarify that. That's not in your brief. What, 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 what facts? Well, if I could, juror's statements in the transcript. He prefaces many of his statements in the past tense. I felt like I could be impartial. I felt like I was open to whatever this would bring. I can't help but think it's a general feeling that's come over. And again, this is after the entirety of the trial. He is saying to the court that I was open, but now that I've gone through this trial, I cannot set these things aside. But then the ultimate conclusion, of course, I can be impartial. Those are contradictory. And he himself, the unique circumstance of a juror, bring his bias forecast. 
of forecasting that bias to the to the judge is why we have to take greater caution with this particular jury and that's why i think the error occurred in those conclusions but i just want to be clear that this is an inference of racial bias it's an inference based on the transcript to be sure but it's an inference he never from what i understand mention the defendant's race or the race of folks in, in North St. Louis? Certainly not, but the, uh, the judge himself acknowledged the statements were suggestive of bias. Racial bias? Just bias, Your Honor. And okay. I believe we can expand if the court does not deem that the racial inference is supported. I do think it still is very strongly supported against the specific bias of criminality and further misconduct against Mr. Willis that he could not set aside. What about the fact that he just came, the juror came forward at all? kind of unusual to be in the midst of, of deliberations and come forward. Does that factor in the timing of this? Does it factor in? I would say that the unique, this is a circumstance that even we had not experienced. I think that a government, myself, and the judge had not ever experienced a juror themselves coming forward with their own concerns. I think that goes to the previous question of how much he could not, how uncomfortable he was with the thoughts and concerns that he could not set aside, which is why he brought that to the court's attention. And I, I don't, I read the transcript, I don't think that the, the judge or anyone asked him, why now? It was that part, I mean, it was. I wonder if, if another follow-up question with him might have fleshed out, to your point, he didn't respond to the voir dire questions, but now he's in the deliberation and he's coming, he, you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal to come to the judge and say, look, here are my thoughts. I wonder if that additional question might have fleshed this out a little bit more. My memory is that the court did inquire very briefly as to, you sat through voir dire, we asked you these general questions, we asked you if there were any other the concerns, you didn't bring those up, and I think that's when some of these preface statements came in. I felt like I could be impartial, mm -hmm. I thought I would be a good juror. And so that is where I'm saying those contradictory statements are coming out. Was there, tell me how um, your district deals with the alternates. Now, there's a, the, they'd already been engaged in deliberation, so the alternates are still there in the courtroom? The, the judge, I believe, I don't know if this is his general practice. This was my first trial with this particular district judge, but immediately before deliberations were to begin, the juror brought this issue to the court's attention. The court retained the alternates in this case, and so that remedy was very much available to the court after the questioning was allowed, and that was uh, the reasons why we moved for the removal of the juror after the questioning to be replaced by an alternate. So you didn't have to ask for a mistrial, it was just replaced with another. Correct. Alternate. And the deliberations, while I think there is a problem in the fact that we don't we will never know the impact that these biases played in that hour of deliberation. The fact that it only was an hour means there wasn't a huge impact on restarting fresh with a new alternate in that, that one hour time that had been spent. What about the Feretta issue? I want to make sure you get to that because I think that's a, a really you. tough issue. Yes, so there's no dispute that Mr. Willis knowingly and intelligently waived his right to counsel. I don't believe that's an issue. I think the real issue is whether or not Mr. Willis's beliefs and, and, and answers to the court gave rise to disruption. And when we look to um, the these sovereign beliefs are often allowed to represent themselves in trials. And we have many court decisions saying that these repeated frivolous challenges to dis 
jurisdiction are not deemed disruptive. I believe that the Fry hearing transcript is very much indicative to the conduct that Mr. Willis engaged himself throughout the entirety of the trial. He was responsive to the court. He was respective to the court. The court even acknowledged in the Fry hearing that he did not deem Mr. Willis to be disruptive in any way. What the court leaned on in this instance were the, um, I would say, the attacks on jurisdiction. I am not the defendant in this case. You don't have authority over me. Those are the sorts of things that the court deemed to be disruptive, he said in the pretrial. Well, let me ask you this. I just want to follow, because I, there's one sentence in here, one passage that really um, sort of supports the, the district, court's, um, district court's ruling, which is he kept asking, do you want to represent yourself, he being the district court? Um, and then um, I think Mr. Willis said, quote, no, sir, it's not me that's being or me that's being represented. The, the the problem I have with that is it's not clear what he's actually responding to. He being Mr. Willis, it's not clear whether he's saying no, sir, I'm not representing myself because it's not me that's being represented, or no, sir, I haven't changed my mind. And so I, it, the district court could not get a straight answer. I don't think for Mr. Willis. So what what's wrong with then saying okay, well I can't I can't figure out what you think. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull count or I'm gonna give you counsel. Well, given that, that is, I would say I was present for that uh, questioning. My interpretation is very much that he was, based on all the other statements, still saying that he was not the defendant. He's the attorney. In fact, he was representing the charged defendant. Um, as far as what is the court's authority based on um, that misunderstanding, I don't believe at any point that goes back to is he knowingly or intelligently waiving. He understood the consequences of his rights. I, Actual examples of disruption, we have threatening letters to the court, abusing subpoena powers, interrupting the proceedings, or even invoking your right days before trial. Mr. Willis, even during the Fry hearing, was very adamant that he wanted to proceed to trial as soon as possible. Counsel, let me put, did either party cite to the district court my decision in Smith, United States versus Smith? At the time, I was not aware, so I did not cite it. However, I do believe... Nobody cited it on appeal. And in my view, it's, it's controlling. I do agree it's controlling, and I believe that your opinion actually ex explains that the court should have addressed these issues in ways of not allowing the argument to be made. I mean, to the best part of that opinion is a, is a quote from another case, a defendant's constitutional right to be present at his trial includes the right to be an irritating fool in front of a jury of his peers. Certainly, certainly. That... That applies here. Absolutely. That's all this your client <laughs> wanted to do. Absolutely. And, I and the district court, with no help from the lawyers, probably didn't find that case in all the cases that are cited because the whole argument was on another, was, you know, on, well, what did he understand and so forth. I now, I'm very familiar with your opinion in Smith. I'm able to talk about it more on my rebuttal. I'm about at an, a minute left, so I can reserve. No, go ahead. No, I, I'm, I, was sending a, I was sending an alert. Okay. Would you like me to continue or? Yes. Okay, please. thank you. Um, so as you mentioned in Smith, it, it very much talks about that these are not considered, uh, these beliefs, even these continual jurisdictional claims are not disruption, and that's what I believe the court acknowledged. I think the government cites Atkins for um, review, which talks about the revocation in the pretrial stage. However, it also says that 
you know, the pretrial revocation is allowed, but only if a strong indication the defendant will disrupt proceedings in the courtroom will occur. And I do not believe that demonstration occurred. And Atkins was also very specific, leaning on Smith to say that it was not the frivolity of the sovereign citizen proclaimed beliefs that they revoked his right for. It was for the improper conduct in court. And for those reasons, I believe the court erred and did not um, have the authority to revoke his Sixth Amendment right. I will reserve the 10 seconds I have left for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Martin? May it please the court. Matt Martin on behalf of Appellee of the United States of America. Uh, Your Honors, I'll start with um, the question that we left or the issue that we left off. Um, about the district courts. Have you now read Smith? I have, Your Honor. I have read Smith. and I assume and you didn't read it before this case was on appeal. That's correct, Judge. Um, here's why... Um, so a, a, very, a very competent but quite new district judge was completely led astray by the counsel in this case, is my view. I would respectfully disagree with that, Your Honor. I, I think the Smith well, case... Well, okay, you can, you can start by distinguishing it. Yes, and, and the Smith case is different um, from, from the facts and circumstances that were at issue here. Um, first, Your Honor, the Smith case recognized, um, as Your Honor pointed out in the opinion, that um, you know, these disruptions, um, this type of, 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 of argument that appears to be nonsensical, they're to be tolerated up and until the point where they threaten to forestall the trial proceedings. That exception was carved that's, out. That's not right. Not if it's all pre-trial. If it's happening during trial, it's a different situation. And there's several other cases, Your Honor, that have indicated that district court doesn't have to wait until the trial starts for these issues to be disruptive or to, be, to, to lead to the trial being inefficient before it can make a decision on the defendant's right to represent himself. When a self-represented defendant is making a fool of himself in front of the jury, it's disruptive of what one would presume would happen at trial. Correct. But that's, that's his constitutional right, to be scolded and warned and, and over and over again ter- during trial until it comes to the point where trial can't go on. But, but well, it, I think Smith says it, but in my view, you can't, you can't just assume that because this, I mean, we've been dealing with these sovereign cit- citizen idiots for almost as long as I've been a judge. And the issue isn't the fact that Willis was was um, invoking these sovereign citizen-like beliefs. The issue was that Mr. Willis couldn't even agree or answer questions and acknowledge that he was the defendant named right. in the indictment. He's going to stand up there and say, "You're not a judge, and this isn't a court, and you're not a jury, and I'm not. A, I'm not me." The issue that was presented and, and, to you know, the, and 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 the judge and the judge once the jury's impaneled is going to is going to come down on that. And may ultimately have to um, uh, have him removed from the courtroom. So even back to Ferretta, Your Honor, courts have recognized that district court has to be given sufficient discretion to handle these types of issues. And I would point the court to the decision just in 2022 in the Atkins case. I believe that that's more on point than Smith. Uh, in Smith, the defendant in that case wasn't relying on sovereign citizen-like arguments. Um, wasn't claiming that he was not the defendant named in the indictment. In the Atkins case, we have 
a defendant who is making similar types of arguments. And, During you know, trial or pre-trial? Pre-trial, Your Honor. Uh, pre-trial. And, and the issue for being disrupt disruptive doesn't require a defendant to stand on counsel table and wave his arms or swear at the court and be disruptive in that sense. It can also be disruptive in that it delays the proceedings. And that's exactly what Mr. Willis did in this case. And if you look at the record, the totality of the circumstances, I think the appellant wants you to focus on what happened that morning at the pretrial conference. But we have to look from start to finish. And when we look at the entire record, what we have is um, initially when Mr. Willis wrote the letter to the, to the magistrate judge and requested that he uh, proceed pro se. He didn't explicitly request it. That's how the magistrate judge interpreted it. The magistrate judge attempted to schedule a Feretta hearing on two occasions. Two occasions, Mr. Willis refused to leave his cell to participate in those proceedings. That's obstructive conduct. That delays the proceedings. Um, so that's the starting Did point. Did he know that that was what the hearing was about? We never got to that point because he wouldn't even participate in the proceedings. But, and it, well, it, it seems based on if 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 he wasn't even trying to go pro se at that point, can we? Anyway, just I wonder if we can factor that in. Well, the hearing was set in response to the Mr. Willis's letter that he sent to the magistrate court. So I think we can presume that it was fair for him to to understand and know this is in response to the letter that, and the the relief that you're requesting. So, counsel, uh, I want to I want to just follow up on Atkins really quickly, which is, I'm reading it, it says, this is not, that case was not based on his sovereign citizen beliefs. It was based on his um, his unruly behavior at the pretrial conferences. He was removed from the court once. Uh, one hearing lasted for more than six hours. Um, he had been disruptive, and he had told the court things like, this trial is not going to happen, judge, and things like that. I don't see anything like that here at all that approaches this kind of behavior. Not explicitly, no. And again, the courts have never required that type of behavior for the, the district court to make a decision to revoke um, a right to proceed pro se. What we have is an unwillingness to recognize that Mr. Willis was a defendant named in the indictment. We also have some waffling, some well, back and if forth. That, if that's enough, we're going to have, we might as well trash or Ferretta. So, again, it's the totality of the circumstances. These, these issues that, that came up on the heels of trial what, and the pretrial. What about the guy who's charged with, with theft, bank theft? And he, and he says, I didn't, I didn't steal any money because the Federal Reserve System, it doesn't exist. It's unconstitutional. That's no different than saying, oh, I'm not me. It's, it's, it certainly is different, Your Honor, and it's different because what the defendant was saying is, I'm not the person who's being named in this indictment. I'm not the person who's being prosecuted by the United States. Okay, that's that's separate and apart from... That's a jury question. I, I, I don't believe it is a jury question, Your Honor. In fact, it was raised by the defendant on his pretrial motion to dismiss the indictment, his motion to dismiss so, the so superseding mis indictment. Misidentification mis is... is Always an issue of law. I mean, he, he says, oh, yeah, Donald Wilson may have done this, but it's not, not my Donald Wilson. And those issues were litigated at the pretrial stage, and they were decided. And Mr. Willis was unwilling to, to accept those uh, rulings by the magistrate court that were then adopted and affirmed by well, the if district he, court. If he had had, a, <clears throat> if he had, had a, a lawyer like many, they would have said, okay, we'll take that up on appeal, whether that's a question of law. I think it's a jury question. The district court, Your Honor was faced with a situation where, and you, in Smith you cited to a case, I believe out of the Fourth Circuit, with a parenthetical that says, 
this case couldn't proceed because the defendant wasn't even willing to accept the fact that he was the defendant in the case. And that's exactly what we have here. And that position for Mr. Willis threatened to forestall and delay the trial proceedings. And that's why the district court took action. And going again to the totality of the circumstances, we have Mr. Williams, uh, or yeah, Mr. Willis's refusal to participate uh, in the first two hearings where his concerns would be addressed. We have uh, Mr. Willis's refusal to participate in one of the pretrial um, conferences that was on April 14th, a status hearing, excuse me. Um, we have Mr. Willis's repeated challenges to uh, the indictment um, on the ground that he was not the individual that was named in the indictment. And then we have uh, the morning of uh, the pretrial conference, his unwillingness to recognize that he was in fact Anthony Willis who was named in the indictment. The totality of the circumstances we see significantly delayed the proceedings and they would only serve to continue to delay the proceedings, risk confusion in the jury of what the issues were at trial. There was also a motion in limine that the government um, submitted to the court that was uh, granted that would prohibit and preclude Mr. Willis from making these types of arguments in trial. And everything in the record suggested that this continued behavior would lead in and spill into the trial. And that's why the district court took action. And that's why the district court's action uh, was proper under the law and should be affirmed by this court. Um, moving to the issue um, involving juror number three, um, Judge Kelly, you're absolutely right. Timing is a factor, especially in a situation like this. Um, and if we look at the, the trial transcript, uh, specifically volume two at page 114, we see that the district court did ask juror number three, why now? Why are you raising these concerns now? And it's important uh, because of the context of juror number three's answer. Juror number three's concern about his personal safety was based on the evidence that he saw and heard in the trial because he only raised that concern after he had seen all the evidence. And he cites, you know, the videos, the body cam videos that were shown at trial. He talks about the layers of evidence. He talks about an individual with a firearm being arrested in North St. Louis. Those are all facts that were presented at trial, and that's exactly what we want jurors to do, is to but, make but, decisions but, based on the facts. Right, but what, yeah, and, and what he was presenting based on your sort of timing issue is that based on the facts, I am now a different juror than I was when you chose me for this particular jury trial. Based on the facts of the case, I have concerns now that I didn't have right. at the beginning when jury right. selection was, 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 was begun before there was ever any evidence presented. And I think that's a very important distinction in this case because at the beginning of trial during the voir dire selection, juror number three was the same person he was at the end. Okay, He's a 32-year meteorologist on local TV, considers himself a public figure. That was true before trial started. The same can be said about the defendant, Anthony Willis. He was an African-American defendant. If there were concerns that juror number three had about his personal safety that were rooted in race, well, those concerns would have been and could have been ex expressed when all those factors were the same at the beginning of the does, case. Does it, let, okay, so let's, there's the assertion that, that race is involved in this, but even if you put it, the race aside, and you just say, now I am an, I'm a juror who's afraid. Whatever the race of this defendant is, whatever my race is, I'm afraid now. Why should that juror, why would, it, why would a litigant be comfortable having that juror on the panel? Because we start with the presumption of impartiality. 
So when you have an answer from a juror that's suggestive of bias, and maybe this was suggestive of bias, that he was afraid, the proper remedy for that, the proper course to take, isn't to, okay, let's just get this juror removed for cause and bring in an alternate. That's not what we do. That's not what we do what, at the beginning. What would, what would you have done? Yeah, would you have done that in the voir dire? No. The, the same process. In, in the court, the district court, you can read the, the, the transcript, took careful consideration of this issue, painstakingly careful consideration of this issue. You do the same thing regardless of when it happens during jury selection before trial or when it arises mid-trial. You ask follow-up questions. Can I just as a, at a you've got a, it's kind of unusual that you had alternate jurors were at the ready. Um, I'm not sure that that often happens. I don't know what the how this district court handles those situations normally. Why not just replace? If if one of the two litigants in a case is very concerned, and there are the, are these expressions of fear, and you have another alternate. Switch them out. Because it was only a suggestion. And that suggestion was then further explored by the district court and asking further questions about what's the basis for your concern? Uh, what's the basis uh, that you've expressed? Is that going to affect how you view the facts and evidence in this case? Can you set aside that concern and decide this case based solely on the facts and evidence? And he said yes. And so there doesn't need to be any further inquiry or there doesn't need to be any um, substitution of jurors because this juror has indicated, both the district court and the parties, that he can be fair and impartial despite this concern. We deal with these suggestions of bias or these concerns all the time. The proper remedy for that is voir dire, whether it be racial bias or otherwise. And, and, and Your Honors, it's striking to me that the appellant uh, hangs its hat on a racial bias during the briefing and, pa and papers in this case, and now retreats from that position. If, if the appellant was concerned about racial bias at the time of the trial, the district court gave the appellant and the government every opportunity to ask any additional questions. They didn't take that opportunity because nobody at the time was concerned that juror number three expressed any uh, type of racial bias in the concerns that he raised. And this court gives uh, special deference to credibility deter determinations that are made um, by the district court in questioning uh, jurors and dealing with uh, strikes for cause. And this, this court only overturns a district court's credibility determination if there's manifest error. This record does not indicate that. Very far from it. Um, again, juror number three expressed a concern that the district court found was honest and was candid, uh, but also that based on his demeanor throughout the course of the trial, the district court uh, believed that he could set aside that concern and decide the, the, the case based on the facts and the evidence and the laws instructed by the court. There's no reason uh, to second-guess or doubt the district court's credibility determinations. Cert they certainly weren't made in manifest error, and for those reasons, um, that should not be the basis to overturn the jury's verdict finding Mr. Willis guilty of possessing a firearm as a previously convicted felon. Um, I see that my time is, is almost up. Uh, if, if there aren't any additional questions from your honors, um, I will respectfully request uh, that this court affirm the jury, uh, jury's court, the, excuse me, the jury's verdict um, uh, in, in the uh, trial below. Thank you.
I have nine seconds. <laughs> so um, I would say, as to Mr. Willis's failure to appear I'll on give these, you a minute. thank you, Mr. Willis's failure to appear at those two status hearings, uh, they were over video conference, and the CARES Act specifically states that defendants need to consent to their appearance via video. His lack of showing up or leaving for those video appearances were his physical objection to appearing via video when brought to the courtroom to be uh, to have a hearing on his motion. There were no issues with the court. There was no disruption. The court did not rely on any actual disruption. It was the beliefs that um, the court deemed uh, sufficient for revocation. And I believe, as we've stated previously, Smith is controlling in, in the uh, grounds that the court um, had to revoke his right to self-representation. As to the, the juror issue, the caution exercised by the court in that determination of whether or not to even interrupt the deliberations to question this juror is the same caution that should have been used in the risk of an, um, in having an impartial juror on the, the panel. His statements were contradic contradictory to uh, a final conclusion of impartiality. He himself acknowledged stereotyping racial stereotypes, and that's why we're leaning on the inference that it is a racial negative, negative racial trope, and um, in addition to the further criminality, and there were no further questions needed because the bias was clear. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. The case has been well briefed and argued, and we'll take it under advisement.